Good morning. We turn in your Bible to John chapter 3. Jesus saves. Thank you, Adam. And our choir, our amazing choir, our orchestra, for leading us in song. Over 400 times in Scripture, we're told to sing. It's a means of grace. And we're reminded as we sing that Jesus saves. And that's why we send mission teams uh, to the nations, be praying for our teams that are still out. That's why we do the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. We'll start that next week because we believe that Jesus saves, but he uses human agency um, in that process. And so be praying for our missionaries, praying for what role you'll play in the Annie Armstrong Easter offering uh, this year. If you would look with me in John 3, we're going to be just looking at one verse today. And that is John 3, 16. Maybe you've heard of that verse. Uh, but for context, we're going to look back in verse 7 in chapter 3. Jesus says, The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we come as the people of God who have believed in him, the Son of God, we have eternal life, and yet we recognize our faith in Christ, our trust in Christ needs to be strengthened this morning. We are like the man in Mark 9 who believes, but Lord, help our unbelief. We pray this text would be a means towards strengthening our faith in the Savior, the Son of God. We also pray, Lord, that those who do not yet know Jesus in a saving way today that you would open their eyes, remove the veil, that they might see him, behold him as Savior and Lord, and trust in him, believe in him, and have eternal life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So grateful that Adam led us in the song, The, the Love of God. Uh, it's one of my favorite hymns, and I think um, there's a couple of reasons for that. The lyrics themselves but I was raised in a family that always watched the Billy Graham Crusades. And so you would, at some point in that crusade, you would hear George Beverly Shea sing uh, The Love of God. Well, it was written by Frederick Lehman in 1917. Uh, Frederick was a, a California 
businessman who lost everything in some bad business deals. And about that time, after losing everything, he went to a, uh, a church service and, and he heard about uh, the, the love of God. And he was so stirred by that message that he couldn't even sleep that night. Well, the next morning at work, and he was working in a Pasadena packing house, packing oranges and lemons and, and things like that in, in these crates, he began to write some lyrics to a song inspired by that sermon the day before. By the end of the day, he had written two verses. That night on his piano, he wrote the melody, just came together. But in those days, a song was seen as incomplete if you didn't have three stanzas. And so he still needed a third stanza, and he didn't know what to do about that. And then he remembered a friend had given him a poem about the love of God. And it was written on a card, and he was using that card as a bookmark. He hadn't looked at it in some time. So he, he went and, and he looked at that card, that bookmark, and, and here's what it said. These words were found written on a cell wall in a prison cell some 200 years ago. It's not known why the prisoner was incarcerated. Neither is it known if the words were original or if he had heard them somewhere and had decided to put them in a place where he could be reminded of the greatness of God's love. Whatever the circumstances, he wrote them on the wall of his prison cell. In due time, he died, and the men who had the job of repainting his cell were impressed by his words. Before their paintbrushes had obliterated them, one of the men jotted them down, and they were preserved. And remarkably, uh, that poem fit the melody of, of Lehman's song. And these are the words of the third verse that we sang this morning. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and on every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. Indeed, the hymn is correct. That poem was correct. Lehman was correct to include it in his song. And perhaps no text in all the scripture more inspires the saints and angels' song than John 3.16. Now, as we have seen, uh, chapters 2 to 4 are to be read together. Now, why do we say that? Well, there's kind of like bookends there that are intentional, given us by John, who wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit. And, and so chapter 2 begins with a, a sign miracle, the first sign miracle in Cana of Galilee. The second sign miracle comes at the end of chapter 4 of Cana in Galilee. And so situated between those two bookends, we have a central theme that John is communicating. And that theme is, Jesus has come to make all things new. 
He is setting aside in his work a reality that has been ruined beyond repair, and he is remaking it into something new. And that new reality is what John means by salvation. It is that new reality that Jesus is securing through his person and work. Um, And in our text, Jesus has just told Nicodemus, you must be born again. And that is the truth to every human who has ever lived. You must be born again in order to inherit the kingdom of God. And then in verse 9, Nicodemus has asked, how can these things be? He is the most religious person perhaps that's ever walked the earth. And he's asking Jesus, how can this be that, that I would need to be born again in order to see and enter the kingdom of God? Well, verses 10 to 21, Jesus explains that. And we saw last week, these things can be first and foremost because of the person of Jesus, who is the son of God, the son of man. But we also saw it's because of the work of Jesus. And Jesus uses Numbers 21 uh, to, to show the kind of work he was coming to achieve. And in Numbers 21, Moses was called to, to put a bronze serpent up on a pole and so that those who have been bitten by these poisonous snakes, because of their sin, all they had to do was look to the serpent that had been lifted up and they would be saved uh, from their poison, from their death, from, um, for the forgiveness of sins, if you will. And that brings us uh, to a third reason uh, these things can be. So we've seen the person of Christ, the work of Christ, and here we see the love of God. The love of God. Jesus continues to answer the question that was posed by Nicodemus. In fact, in verse 16, we see the highest expression of God's love. Notice with me in verse 16 again, as we read this very well-known verse, a verse that perhaps most of you, if not all of you, have memorized. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, there is no more beloved verse in all the Bible than John 3.16. It is most often the first verse that translators put into another language. We understand why. It's the verse you see on signs at ball games. We've seen that for decades, haven't we? Uh, it's memorized in children's classes. Virtually every children's class, a child will not come out of that class without having memorized John 3.16. It was the one text that Billy Graham always preached. He preached this passage in every crusade he ever preached. In fact, it was generally the, the first sermon of the crusade. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher in, in London, said this of this verse. I sometimes think that if I never had a gleam of love from God's face again, I would live on John 3.16. A good word. And so here in John 3, 16, so much is said in such few words, such a short space. 
And first and foremost, we see here the cause of salvation. And what is the cause of salvation? It's certainly not human merit. That's the point that Jesus is making to Nicodemus. It's the love of God. And that's why it's impossible to sing too much about the love of God. It's really impossible to muse, to reflect too much on the love of God. But with that said, there are reasons that the doctrine of the love of God is a very difficult doctrine, especially in today's climate. And maybe the central reason for that is that, um, that if a person in the United States believes in God at all, it's very likely that person has no problem with the love of God. Uh, They're not going to have a problem with holding that God is a loving being. And ironically, that's what makes the task of evangelism challenging. It makes it challenging for us because is that because when a, an unbeliever reflects and thinks about the love of God, uh, generally they divorce that attribute of God from the many other things that the Bible says about God. Is, the result is that when a Christian is talking about the love of God and the greater culture is talking about the love of God, we're talking about two different things. And worse, neither side may perceive that is the case. We may not even know that we're talking about two different things. To put it another way, um, we live in a culture in which many other complementary truths about God are outright disbelieved. So they take this one attribute and it becomes the controlling attribute and then All these other attributes that speak about God are disbelieved or denied, like the sovereignty of God, the holiness of God, the justice of God, the wrath of God. The result is that the love of God in our culture has been purged of everything that the culture finds distasteful. In other words, the love of God has been sentimentalized. But this hasn't always been the case. There have been other earlier generations uh, when almost everyone believed in the justice of God. Their problem was in believing in the love of God. And so if you spoke about the justice of God, you, you, you wouldn't have any eyebrows raised. But today, if you tell people that God loves them, they're likely to be unsurprised. In fact, they perceive themselves to be very lovable. Um, They have a far more difficult time believing in the justice of God, the righteousness of God. And that's why John 3.16 is so very important to us today. As clearly as any verse in the Bible, John 3.16 teaches us that God is love and God is just, as we will see. The second thing this text teaches us, we see the object of God's love. Notice the object of God's love in this passage. God so loved 
the world. Now, the world here isn't referring to uh, the creation in its entirety, although certainly Jesus' work will bring about a new creation, but rather it's referring to the creation that has rejected God. And most particularly, the human creatures, the image bearers in rebellion to him. And so, here God sending his son um, is a remarkable act of love. And it's to be admired, not because it extends to so big a thing as the world, but to so bad a thing as the world. Indeed, we do not naturally want to fellowship with God. That is not our natural inclination. Uh, we'd rather do harm to ourselves. I mean, just walk on the college campus here and see uh, how natural man perceives things. We'd rather do harm to ourselves than to live for God. And that means that God's love is not set on some worthy object. We are not worthy objects. God does not love us because we are so worthy. He loves us in our natural state of hatred and alienation to him. And in this context, think about the context. He's speaking to a very religious man, Nicodemus. And he is saying Nicodemus is to be included in this notion of the world. And so one end of the spectrum, you have highly religious people, very committed people that Jesus would include in what he calls the world. And then we're going to see in chapter 4, on the other end of the spectrum, you have highly sinful people, outwardly sinful people, adulterers and so forth, like the the woman at the well that he includes in the world. And so on, on both ends of the spectrum, Jesus would include the world. And scripture, Jesus tells Nicodemus here, God so loved the world. And yet, and this is where the culture has a problem, this love does not rid of the necessity for the cross. Indeed, it requires it. That's the third thing this passage teaches us, this verse teaches us, the means of salvation. The means of salvation is God gave his only son. That is the only means of salvation. Uh, into a world, mind you, that is not hospitable. Indeed, the Son of God entered the realm of our hostility, of our alienation, and he took the cross for those who were hostile to him. Paul says this later in Romans 5, for when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. He took the cross for those who deserved the judgment of God. Indeed, again, God giving his son reveals his love. Why? Because in one sense, God didn't have to save us. God could have remained who he is, holy and just and righteous, and condemned us all. He could have remained who he is. There would have been nothing that would have impugned his character if God had determined, had not decreed, 
to save a people. But once God decreed to save a people, he had to give his son. And so uh, his, the giving of his son not only reveals his love, the giving of his son reveals his justice. Why? Because his wrath must be satisfied on our sin. Our injustice would prevail. And God is just. So he gave his son because our sins must be dealt with. Without a substitute, we would still be in our sins. We would be under divine judgment. And so God gave his son, and essentially you could say this. It was divine self-satisfaction by divine self-substitution. He gave his son. Indeed, when you study the New Testament, think about this. The next time you think about the love of God, as you're reading about the love of God in the New Testament, you'll be hard-pressed to find a verse in the New Testament that speaks about the love of God that doesn't also, in the context, speak about the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you this example of many. 1 John 4. Uh, John says, and this is love, 1 John 4.10. Now, at this point, um, you know, dictionaries, before Wikipedia, were a really high-selling item. Uh, now, with Wikipedia, I, th I think it's hit the dictionary market pretty hard. But we love definitions, and that's why dictionaries have historically sold well. But when John says, this is love, we think he's going to give us a definition of love, but he doesn't. Instead, he gives us an event he says, and this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he gave his son as a propitiation for our sins. Now, what does that word propitiation mean? It means he gave his son to satisfy his wrath on our sin. Now, it's a holy wrath. It's a good wrath. Imagine a world where Sins and crimes are not judged. That, that would be an unlivable world. So it is good that God is wrathful on sin. And so in the giving of his son, the son of God propitiates the wrath of God. So his death, where he takes our judgment, is the propitiation. The son that was given is the propitiator. And God the Father is the propitiated. And so the Father is propitiated in the work of, our, of the Son of God. Now, crucial to understanding the necessity of the cross, the necessity of Jesus, is in understanding that it's God who needs reconciling to fallen humankind far more than humankind to God. God does not need us to be reconciled to him. He's not needy. But we need to be reconciled to him. There's where the grace comes in. That's where the love comes in. Yes, we are willfully alienated from him. We don't desire to be reconciled, but we need to be reconciled. We flee from his presence. We exchange daily the truth of God for a lie. It takes the new birth to turn us around. It takes a miracle of grace. But no change of heart would be possible. No change of heart would be effective 
if the greater work of making it possible for God to be favorable to us was not first secured. That's not to say that it was the cross that made God love us. It was not the cross that made God love us. God loved us, and therefore he gave his son to die on the cross for us. Think of it this way. God so loved the world, and he has forever loved the world, and now, through the cross of the Son of God, he, he can be at peace with the world. It is through the cross. Uh, John Flavel, the great Puritan, gave three observations at the end of his exposition of John 3:16 that I think drive home God's love for us here. First of all, this verse shows us the exceeding preciousness of souls. And that's the high rate that God values our souls. Your soul is important. You have a soul that will never die. God values our souls and we see it in the giving of his highest gift the Son of God. Secondly, since God has given us this, this gift of his Son, we can be confident of receiving every other good thing that we need in order to persevere with joy and gladness as he prepares us for heaven. Isn't that Romans 8.32? He who did not spare his own Son but delivered him up for us all, how much more will he in him freely give us all things? There's another observation from Flavel, I think, that drives home the importance of the next part of this verse that we're about to look at. If the greatest love of God has been manifested in giving Christ to the world, then it follows from that that the greatest evil in the world is manifested in rejecting that love that he has given us in his greatest gift Indeed, the greatest evil, because that greatest evil is manifested in spurning, rejecting God's greatest love, then to appropriate that love requires we open our hearts to it by faith. And that brings us to the next part of this verse. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And notice in the second part of the verse that whoever believes in him should not perish. And, and so while the new birth, being born again, occurs in the subconscious. Now, why do we say it occurs in the subconscious? Because the new birth is a miracle of grace. It's something God the Spirit does our believing in the Son, our trusting, our faith in the Son occurs at the conscious level as we embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. This isn't just some kind of intellectual ascent where you believe something and then you get a ticket to heaven. No, for John, believing is an all-out commitment so there's three aspects to this. Think of it this way. I've alliterated it to, to help this. First of all, you have to comprehend something. Saving faith in Jesus, belief in Jesus, 
first of all, includes comprehension of something. What do we have to comprehend? We have to comprehend that we are sinners, that God judges our sin, and that God has made provision for our sin in the substitute, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ paid our sin debt in full on the cross. He was raised from the grave that we might have the forgiveness of sins. We have to comprehend that. No one is saved without comprehending that. That's why we send missionaries because the nations need to comprehend the gospel. The second part of that saving faith is conviction. So what we comprehend, we are convicted deep down in our souls that it's true. The Jewish leaders of the day, they they comprehended what Jesus was doing, but they did not have the conviction that he was Messiah. We have to have conviction that, that this is true. And then the third part of that, saving faith is commitment in light of what I comprehend in light of my conviction that this indeed is true Jesus Christ is Messiah I am going to commit my life to him I'm going to live under his lordship that's how the love of God is appropriated it is appropriated by faith we are saved by grace alone through faith alone and in so doing we experience and that brings us to the last part of this passage the blessing of God's love. The blessing of God's love. Notice in John 3 again, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, eternal life is not just heaven. Even the most vile pagan wants that. No, eternal life is God in heaven. Indeed, It's not just God in heaven. It is God now for those who believe. Eternal life begins now for those who believe. Abundant life. Of course, the opposite of that, John is juxtaposing the notion of eternal life with perishing. Now, hear me on this because there's been a lot of negative press on the doctrine of eternal hell. It's a hard doctrine. But the scripture clearly teaches that to perish does not mean to cease to exist. We have souls that will never die. Even the unbeliever has a soul that will never die. It will never cease to exist. Paul says it this way for the unbeliever in 2 Thessalonians 1. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Now, why is it eternal? Because the unbeliever remains in his or her sin and remains in rebellion to God in judgment. So in the Gospel of John, uh, you have the language of perishing, of being condemned, of of judgment, of, of dying, of death, all of that is juxtaposed to eternal life, abundant life. And so the day of judgment will only make visible what in fact is true today of the unbeliever. If you're an unbeliever today, you are perishing. You are dying in your sin. You are under, we'll see this next week, the condemnation and the wrath of God. Conversely, you can have eternal life before you die. 
We don't wait till death to have eternal life. We begin the experience of eternal life in the here and now. That is what the love of God in the Son has secured for those who believe. Indeed, this text is worthy, isn't it? Of so much meditation and reflection. For in it we see God, who is the greatest lover. All other love pales in, uh, in comparison. God is the greatest lover. He so loved, that is the greatest of all affections. He loved the world. That is the greatest of all grace because the world did not love him back. That he gave. That's the greatest act that God gave. He gave his only son the greatest gift that whoever, that is the greatest invitation, is an invitation to the world that whoever believes, that is the greatest response to the grace of God, in him, the greatest person, should not perish. That is the greatest deliverance. That is the greatest salvation but have eternal life. That is the greatest present and the greatest future. Believer, and this was primarily written to believers, if you're ever tempted to doubt the goodness and the love of God because you're viewing it through your circumstances, behold the giving of the Son, the cross of the Son, and how do you know when God's love has captured you? Delight, awe, devotion. That's how you know the love of God has captured you. It replaces the anxiety. It replaces the, the despair, the, the discouragement, the discontentment, the ingratitude. That's how you know when you are walking in the love of God in Jesus Christ. There's a true story about a man just after the Civil War. He had traveled many miles to a soldier's cemetery in Nashville. And he was kneeling at a grave. And a bystander there asked him, is that your son that's buried there? He said, no. I have seven young children and a wife back in Illinois. I was drafted, and despite the, the hardship that it would have caused, I, I, I was required to join the army. But on the morning that I was to depart, this man, my neighbor's oldest son, came over, and he offered to take my place in the, in the war. The bystander said, what are, you, what are you writing on his grave? And the farmer replied, I'm writing, he died for me. Everyone who believes that this morning that the Son of God died for you has eternal life. And those who don't, you are perishing in your sins. But note the love of God here. So how do we respond to that? Let me just give you a, a few. This is not comprehensive responses to the, the love of God as we close. First and foremost, thanksgiving. It's hard to complain. It's hard to be discontented. It's hard to be down in the mount. It's hard to be discouraged when your heart is filled with thanksgiving. 
Psalm 136, speaking about the love, it says, Give thanks because the steadfast love of God endures forever. So we are to give thanks. Be a person who lives in the love of God as evidenced by your gratitude. How about hope? A second application to the love of God is hope. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how much more will he in him freely give us all things? You know what the cross tells you? God is all in. He is completely all in on you as a believer. He is concerned about your welfare. He is concerned about your godliness. He is concerned about you. So walk in hope. A third proper response is love. You know, 1 John 4, um, this is love, not that God loved you, but God uh, loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. He said, therefore, beloved, if God so loved you in this way, so you ought to love one another. Do you get that? He is saying that true love is a costly love. And it's a love that is extended to those who don't deserve it. It's a love extended to those who deserve the opposite. They deserve your ire. They deserve your judgment. But instead of pouring out judgment on those who don't deserve it, you absorb the debt. That's the kind of love John calls us to when he reflects on the love of God in Jesus. It's also a love that takes the gospel to the nations, isn't it? As we, we've experienced this love, we have eternal life, but we know not everyone else has. And so we take this gospel to our neighbor, we take this gospel to the nations. That's love. How about we live by faith in the Son of God? Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, yet it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I live by faith in the, the Son of God. That is my hallmark. That is who I am. Also, forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32, Paul says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as in Christ God forgave you. You don't know what this person did to me. Whatever that person did to you pales in comparison to what you did to God. Forgive one another, just as in Christ God forgave you. Then he says, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. Paul is saying that when you've experienced the love of God as a dearly loved child, you will reflect that in being a person who is known more for your forgiveness than your vindication and bitterness. How about good works? Good works are a response to the love of God. They don't earn favor. They don't earn love. They're a response to favor. They're a response to love. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, following the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love for us, made us alive even when we were dead. It is by grace you have been saved. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. The good works are the fruit of the love of God that we have experienced in the Son of God by grace through faith. 
And then finally, commitment to church life. Now, where do you get that? Well, in Ephesians 3, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened, that you'd be able to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses measure, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. And then he says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more, all that we could ever ask or imagine, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Paul is saying, when you have grasped the love of Christ, you will be committed to what Christ is committed to. And that is the church. That is our response. That is our proper response to the love of God for every believer who've experienced that love by grace through faith. But I also realize there are some here who have not experienced that. And I want you to know God so loved the world. Are you a part of the world? Yes, that means he loves you. And he sent his son to die for our sins, to die for those who would trust in him. And so as Adam and the musicians come forward, we want to give you an opportunity to do that. There's nothing magical or meritorious or sacramental about walking an aisle. But we were going to have pastors here at the, at the head of the aisles to talk to you. Maybe you have questions about what it means to truly trust in the Son of God. Maybe you have questions about what Jesus actually did to secure our salvation. Uh, whatever that is, won't you stand, you sing, and won't you come? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time, or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.